Shalom and welcome to Drosh It Like It's Hot. I'm your host, Aaron Prachanek. Before we get into this week's Drosh by Rabbi Fulberg, we have a few hoda'ot. Our February donation drive for Safe Austin, at Stop Abuse for Everyone, is still going on. So you are welcome to still make a monetary donation on their website or drop off an in-kind donation in the CBI Cohen foyer. CBI and the Dialogue Institute of Austin are hosting a Ramadan dinner on Tuesday, March 12th from 6.45 to 9 p.m. in our Smith Auditorium. Please RSVP to reserve your seat. Please join us over the weekend of April 12th through the 14th as we honor and say goodbye to our beloved senior rabbi, Rabbi Fulberg, after 33 years of leadership. Visit BethIsrael.org slash gathering gratitude for a schedule of events and to RSVP. Purim is quickly approaching, so here's our conversation with Lainey last week talking about the Purim Carnival and all of the festivities. Lainey is the youth coordinator here and has a big role to play in all of the planning process for our Purim Carnival. So Lainey, what's going on with the Purim Carnival this year? I'm so glad you asked. Uh, Purim is March 23rd this year. The carnival will be that Saturday evening from 5 to 7 p.m., um, and as is tradition at CBI, there will be a Purim spiel that'll be following the carnival at seven, but a little bit about the Purim carnival. We have some new and improved carnival games this year. We have some special additions I can share with you. We have a cotton candy machine, a popcorn machine. We have a dunk tank. Ooh, I heard some rumors about some people who may or may not be getting dunked. Can you confirm Anyone? Yes, yes. Rabbi Levy will be first in the dunk tank, followed by our very own executive director, Jake Cohen. You won't want to miss that. No, everybody needs to come and see that and maybe be the one that gets to dunk them. Iconic. And a little bit more. So yeah, the deadline to register for the carnival is March 20th. That's the Wednesday before the carnival. So Wednesday, March 20th is your last chance to register. And when you're registering, you are signing up for a hot dog meal. If you would like to have dinner at the Purim Carnival, we'll be selling hot dogs, but you must pre-register. So if we're selling two options, we have a one hot dog meal and a two hot dog meal. It just means you get one hot dog and all the sides that come with it, or you get two hot dogs in the meal. So for one, it's $7. For two, it's $10. And in order to participate in the Carnival Games, you have to buy a wristband. Those are $10. And all of that can be done on our website. So you'll go to bethisrael.org slash purim.html or on the website if you click worship at the top menu and then click holidays, then click Purim, it'll take you to our webpage where you can register. And anyone can reach out to me with any questions. My email is laney, L-A-I-N-E-Y, at bethisrael.org. So it's a Purim carnival. Can people or should they wear costumes? Absolutely. I won't force anyone to wear a costume, but it is um, it is encouraged. I haven't figured mine out quite yet. It'll be a surprise for everyone. I have not figured mine out either because I will be videoing and then running tech for the spiel and I have no idea how to... I'm definitely not wearing a giant head thing and then trying to use headphones later. So we'll see. You could go as Weird Al. That was my secular forum costume. It's a great one. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on, Aaron, and thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you, Lainey, for telling us all about the Purim Carnival. I hope to see you all there. And now on to the main event. 
This week's drosh by Rabbi Fulberg is about how we deal with breaking stuff, whether it belongs to us or someone else, whether inadvertently or intentionally. Here's This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things. Shabbat shalom, everybody. So friends, I was thinking uh, about the Torah portion for this week, for tomorrow morning, Kitisa, when I was reminded of something that happened to me when I was still quite young, uh, still living at home. I think, in fact, since it was in the first house, the house I was born in, I was probably fifth grade or younger. Um, I don't recall exactly what I was doing when the following thing happened, except I remember that it was something I wasn't supposed to be doing. And particularly something I wasn't supposed to be doing in the living room of the house we grew up in. Maybe I was roughhousing or playing with my brother somewhere that I wasn't supposed to play. I think I might even have been practicing my indoor frisbee skills in the living room. But suddenly, something fell over and crashed. And when I saw what it was, my heart sank. Lying on its side was a porcelain sculpture of a bird with colorful plumage and one long feather growing out of its head. A cockatiel, probably. Uh, As I said, it was made of porcelain. It was hand-painted and covered in a shiny glaze. It was decorated in these beautiful colors. That bird had belonged to my grandmother, my mother's mother, Ganesha, of blessed memory. And when I knocked it over, it broke. That long plume that grew out of its head had snapped off. There are two things I remember about the incident. First, I remember how guilty and foolish I felt for having done what I did. Second, I remember the fact that my mom cried when she saw that the ceramic bird was broken. Surely not because it was monetarily valuable, which it probably wasn't. It was something that came out of the Depression. But cried because it had belonged to her mother, whom my mom still adored and missed so much. As a matter of fact, my mom missed her mother so much that she, my mother, a fine piano player and a singer with perfect pitch, had not touched the piano since the day my grandma died. Her heart was just not in it anymore. Anyway, back to the broken ceramic bird. Do I even need to make the obvious point that there are few things in life that will make you feel quite so puny and worthless as making your mom cry? Fortunately, I'm good with my hands, so with a little tube of a foul-smelling adhesive, and I want to see if anybody remembers this, a foul-smelling adhesive called Duco Cement. No, you don't. This is the tough stuff they told you not to smell. Um, In fact, it was the kind of glue that you used to build model cars, which I did constantly through my middle school and junior high and high school years. Anyway, I managed to fix the porcelain bird. My mom forgave me, of course, but it's a tribute to the staying power of those memories and those feelings that some 55 years later, I can still remember how stupid and guilty I felt in the moment. Of course, naturally, I didn't mean to do it. I didn't want to break it, but the results were the same. It reminded me of terminology that we use in the High Holy Day prayer book. We ask God on the High Holidays to forgive us for acts that we committed bimezid, which means with deliberate intent, with hostile intent, as well as to forgive us for acts which we committed bishkaga, which means by mistake. Jewish law, of course, recognizes the distinction between things that we do deliberately and things that we do by accident. For example, in the Torah itself, there's a huge difference between the way we deal with a deliberate act of murder versus the way the Torah deals with involuntary manslaughter. But no matter what the motivation, you still have to deal with the result. I also cannot resist telling you a story that I think I've told before. If you know it, forgive me. I was friendly when I was in rabbinical school with a cantorial student named Aviva, Aviva Katzman, who has been a cantor in Chicago for many, many years. 
Once, right before she and I were going to catch a movie together, I sat in her tiny apartment in Brooklyn. We all had tiny apartments in Brooklyn, waiting for her to come out of the bathroom so we could leave. So Aviva had this stereo system, and I couldn't resist taking a closer look at it. I'm quite in love with fancy audio equipment, a fascination of which I am not particularly proud. And even back then, I was fascinated, and I crouched down to get a closer look at one of her speakers. I pulled off the foam rubber grill covering the front of one of the speakers to see what the guts of the speaker looked like. Back in the mid-1980s, the covers of stereo speakers were affixed to the speaker cabinet either with clips or with Velcro because they were meant to be removable for dusting off the grill or simply to allow audio nerds to gaze fondly at the guts that produced the sound. And a geek. <laughs> Unfortunately, this particular speaker was not one of them. In fact, I realized to my heart that the foam grill of this particular model was glued on, never intending to be removed. As I felt myself flush with embarrassment, Aviva, of course, walked out of the bathroom and saw me crouching there on the floor with her stereo speaker in pieces. <laughs> Once again, my handiness with a tube of glue saved the day, and I fixed what I had broken, although Aviva never let me forget it. She would sometimes come up to me at school and begin yanking on the sleeve of my coat, saying something like, I wonder how that sleeve of yours is attached to that jacket. <laughs> For years. So when Kitisa, Moses comes down from the mountain and he sees the people frolicking around the golden calf that his brother Aaron built for them. They are worshiping it. They are bowing down to it. They are offering sacrifices to this golden cow. It says, as soon as Moses came near the camp and saw this calf, Moses became enraged. And he took these two tablets and he hurled them from his hands and he shattered them at the foot of the mountain. Moses shattered the two tablets of the Ten Commandments when he threw them to the ground in anger or disgust. Not a friend stereo speaker, not a ceramic bird that belonged to his mom, but as the Torah emphasizes over and over again right before this incident, those tablets were God's work and the writing was God's writing incised upon the tablets. Moses does not pull a tube of model airplane glue out of his robe and make an offer to God to fix the tablets with crazy glue. But what was he feeling and what was he thinking before, during, and after he smashed God's handiwork? In a Torah commentary, Rabbi Laura Geller, one of the first women ordained by the Reform Movement, suggests that although Moses was angry at his people, he was angry at himself as well because he had lost his composure then. How could he smash those tablets? After all, they were touched by God's own hand. Did Moses actually hurl them to the ground? Or is it because, as some of our commentators suggest, the holy letters at that moment flew away so that all was left were heavy stones. They were so heavy that Moses couldn't hold them anymore, and they fell from his hands out of weakness. The rabbis struggle with the question of how Moses could possibly have done such a thing. Rashi suggests that Moses reasoned that since all of Israel had broken faith with God, there was no way he could give them such a gift from God. They simply didn't deserve it anymore. Rabbi Shmuel ben Meir, a grandson of Rashi, who is known as the Rashbam, who lived in northern France in the 1100s, I'm sure you wanted to know that, he taught that the plain sense of the text is that when Moses saw the golden calf, his strength simply failed him. He writes, though he no longer had any strength, he pushed the tablets a little bit away from him. So I love this. He pushed the 11th century France, you ready? He pushed the tablets a little bit away from his body so that they would not hurt his feet when they fell. <laughs> 
just as anyone who uh, no longer had the strength to carry a burden would do. Although I have to say there would be something comically delicious about Moses dropping one of the Ten Commandments tablets on his foot, hopping around and swearing in biblical Hebrew. The Italian Jewish commentator Ovadia Sforno says that Moses broke the tablets out of despair of ever being able to straighten out the situation between the Israelites and God. And a Spanish scholar, Spanish scholar I should say, Abraham Ibn Ezra, suggests that Moses' smashing the tablets was, just like the text says, performed in anger, anger on God's behalf. It was, he suggests, like the tearing up of a ketubah that takes place traditionally at the end of a Jewish divorce proceeding. Moses would eventually create a new set of tablets, says Ibn Ezra, which would represent a new phase in the relationship between God and the Israelites, a renewal of their wedding vows, so to speak. So the commentators are divided between those who see Moses as having let the tablets slip from his hands in despair or hope or shock or weakness, or because the tablets, their holy words having disappeared from them, just became too heavy for him to hold anymore. And on the other side are those who see Moses having shattered God's work, b'mezid, deliberately, totally aware what he was doing. In either case, whether deliberate or by accident, I think Rabbi Geller got it right. Moses must have been heartsick at what had happened, and not only heartsick, but worn out as well. Because when God tells him while still up on the mountain, before Moses has seen what the people have done, that, quote, your people have acted poorly, building themselves a golden calf, Moses once again wears himself out, intervening for the people before God, convincing in the story God to give them another chance. And yet, it seems that when he, seems, when he sees for himself what they've done, he too, at least momentarily, loses hope. What lesson is to be drawn from all of this? Perhaps it is that some of the things we give up on as being hopelessly broken can actually be fixed. Maybe not fixed as good as new. Maybe the cracks will show where we've patched things together. But we work with what is given to us. Perhaps it's also important to remember that what is broken is not necessarily without value. Did you ever wonder what happened to the broken pieces of the tablets of the first set of Ten Commandments? They were not abandoned at the foot of the mountain, nor were they glued together, nor recycled as we might today. Instead, the rabbis teach in the Midrashim, the first set of broken tablets were deposited in the Ark of the Covenant along with the second set of tablets that Moses created. They had both the whole and the broken. The point, after all, was not to mend the tablets, as sacred as they were. The point was to mend the relationship between Moses and God and the people. Moses and the people needed to know that their relationship with God and with each other, with all the many ups and downs and low points that were to follow throughout the Torah, that all of that took place within the larger context of an enduring and forgiving relationship, that even that which was broken would be carried in a larger container with what is whole, a container of ongoing commitment. So as we walk the path of our own lives and as we walk the length of our days, may we commit ourselves to fixing what is within our power to fix, to work with what is broken, and to take responsibility for mending the sometimes difficult outcomes of our actions. This truly is tikkun olam, mending what is broken in the world. And with that, I wish you a Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Rabbi Fulberg, for that drosh. And thank you, Lainey, for stopping by the studio last week to talk about Purim. Thank you, Sarah Jew, for helping with the announcements every week. Also, keep an eye out for a bonus pod in this coming week. We will be re-releasing the Repro Shabbat Drosh by Rabbi Levy as a bonus pod on Drosh Lagatat. So keep an eye out for that, and we hope to see you next week. Shabbat Shalom.